Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we are finally finishing our recaps of Wolf's novella, Tracking Song. This was published first in the collection In the Wake of Man in 1975. We've been reading it, though, from The Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories. We left off last time with Cutthroat and his group of allies, leaving the cave, tearing it down, closing the entrance, all that good stuff. And now he's on his final journey to hopefully overtake the great Slay. So let's get going with this final episode. Yeah, and this this final episode is only covering seven pages, but we are in that span going to cover nine days. It is a lot of short entries now that we've had the climax of the story. So this is really kind of the inversion of last episode, which was uh, just the one day. And if we're thinking in terms of the hero's journey, and we really have been while we've been covering this story, then the narrator has just gone through the underworld and is now trying to return to his world. And, And in this case, what that means is that he's trying to catch up to the great slay. The first thing that we learn on day 11 is that the narrator is traumatized by his experience with the men. He has nightmares about Kim Glowing being abducted again, about being wounded again himself, and and all of it somehow is even worse in the nightmare than it actually was in waking world in the real life and now that they are out in the cold the the machines that are with them uh, roller and bug and dragon uh, they begin to fail. Uh, Bug did not survive even its first night in the cold, and and when they can't revive it, Kim actually cries, and and Roller tries to explain to her that Bug is a machine, and that, in fact, someday someone with the proper skill and and proper tools will be able to repair Bug, Uh, but this is just a concept that she doesn't understand, or at least that's what the, the narrator believes, but nonetheless, they do still have Roller, and they do still have Dragon, and when they eventually find the track of the Great Slay, though though it is very old by now, they're actually able to make pretty good time. And Ketan goes off and hunts and then returns with the corpse of a a young woman of some species that the narrator hasn't encountered before. He does say, though, that she was taller than any of us and slender and must have been beautiful before. And now that he's hunted for them, Ketan leaves the group. And the last thing to say about Day 11 is that the, the cold is affecting the narrator in ways that it hadn't before. And in part, this is because his clothing has been torn, but also in part because he really does have a punctured lung that requires actual medical attention. And these facts really change the nature of the environment and the, the nature of this journey for him. When he first set out back on day four, the, the winter wilderness was really just a backdrop. It was a problem to be solved, but it was a problem that could be solved. The obstacle we were concerned about was not actually the cold. It wasn't like the climate. It was time, right? Could he travel fast enough to catch the great sleigh? But now here at this point in the story, the cold is genuinely hostile. It is going to kill him. The cold is the antagonist in this story now. So we are actually back in a Jack London story. Yeah, absolutely. Things are worse than ever for Cutthroat at this point. And it's clear in the writing that he has made a kind of peace with it. I think I think knowing that the people of the Great Slayer are hearing him and that they can rescue him if they choose to is a source of some comfort for Cutthroat. But he does know that even though this is the case, that the people of the Great Slay could rescue him, that his purpose is to pursue the Great Slay. And so he just continues to go on. He he continues to chase that object of desire. 
And, and I think chase is actually the right word here, which is why we're going to get so many entries, so many short entries all in a row, right? Is that we're, we're picking up, Wolf is picking up the pace here to uh, really make us feel that, you know, time is running out here and it does feel like a chase more than it actually feels like a quest now. And, and day 12 is, uh, it's a short entry. It's really just to let us know that the narrator's physical condition is worsening. Uh, Kim has actually begun to eat the, the woman that Ketan killed for them, but the narrator doesn't do that. He chooses only to eat his uh, his food cubes from uh, from the cave. On day thirteen, the other two machines fail. Roller and, and Dragon fail here, and they'd been using Dragon to carry the meat that Kenton got for them, the, the the corpse of this woman. But this is really just for Kim, right? The narrator says that he, he doesn't think that he could could eat it, even if things got really bad. And I, I wonder how much of that statement is about his physical condition, or really how much of it is about his moral position. Uh, the other big news on day thirteen here, though, is that they are joined by a uh, Pamagaka, and this is White Apple. This is the 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 person whom the narrator uh, had met before, and who did most of the explaining about the impending climate change and the instructions from the Great Slay back on. I guess that was probably our second episode. Uh, though I don't know for sure that we actually said his name in that episode, but here it is, White Apple. Here he is, White Apple. Uh, but he says that he has questions for the people of the Great Slay, and so he's joining the party now. Uh, two more things about this day. At night, the narrator hears someone outside their camp at uh, stealthy movements uh, every five minutes or so. And the narrator also says that he can hear the breathing of the people on the other side of the recorder's transmission. And he says into the recorder, Am I being tested? If I pass, do the right thing, if only once, will you talk to me then? And I want to do one more day before we pause. So there's, I think, already a lot to talk about here, but I want to do one more day before we pause. The, the 14th day includes uh, some details about their food supply. The, the meat runs out, but White Apple is great at foraging. That's what his people do. And the narrator knows that he is the reason that they're traveling very slowly. And so he tries here to, to get Kim and White Apple to just go on without him. But of course, they won't. No one would do that, right? But the main thrust of this entry is the description of another nightmare. And I think that this is worth just reading. Terrible dreams last night. While I was in the city in the cavern, I killed one of the men with Kim's Endieva wand, and afterward they hailed me as a kind of king. Last night in my dreams, I killed that man over and over again while he prostrated himself before me and told me that he would be my slave, would do whatever I asked. I kept striking him with the wand. Each blow poisoned him, but he would not die. I was frantic and ashamed, guilty because I was killing someone who only wished to be my friend. Yet, at the same time, I wanted him to die at once so that no one need know. And clearly, the narrator is haunted by the killing that he's he's had to do on this journey, and, and perhaps especially by the killing of the dwarf. And we're going to see more of that in another entry coming up. But one other thing I want to say before we pause, and then we really will pause to talk about all of this, is that this entry opens with the narrator saying, this is the 14th day. I do not know why that number should seem significant to me, but it does. And... I have to say, I'm not sure why either, but I wonder, Brandon, if you have any thoughts on why he would think that's significant. Yeah, I don't think we do have a clear answer to that. I mean, uh, Mark Aramini suggests that it could be because this was the day he was supposed to rendezvous with the great sleigh and that that's something that Cutthroat is aware of in his innate knowledge and in his innate knowledge that he's kind of dropped onto this planet with, but it's, it's not clear that that's the case. And I don't think Mark even makes, uh, is trying to make a strong argument for that so much as 
create possibilities for what this significance of the 14th day is. Uh, I hope we can maybe determine that in the discussion, but I'm not prepared to make a statement on that at this point. Uh, There is a lot in this section, though, in these three days. Twelfth day, we notice that Cutthroat has stopped eating flesh, as you pointed out. And this is in part because I think he's identifying too much with being like the other creatures on the surface, that they really have become more like men, uh, humankind, I should say, rather than beasts. And Cutthroat is haunted by his actions of killing and violence. And so he doesn't want to go down the same path that the dwarf went down of being a kind of apex predator or like god figure on this planet so he's found another way to sustain himself and uh, this is a, a great note in the ethical journey that cutthroat is taking on the 13th day you know you mentioned that cutthroat is concerned now at this point whether he's here as some sort of ethical test and this is kind of like what we saw in west wind where the people communicate to the king uh, without the king really ever responding. But what's important is the communication and the knowledge that the king hears them and is going to answer them on some level or provide them with what they need to not just survive, maybe, but to flourish on some level. And it's this uh, return, and it's Wolf's return to this idea of prayer as communication with the higher being or with the object of desire in some way that is important that allows us to continue on on our journey knowing that we're being listened to and that we have what we need to survive and in some way maybe tracking song at this point can be read as a series of types of prayers rather than as merely reporting of the journey of the quest. And I think that's a great note that Wolf throws in here as well. The dream on the 14th day is also really significant because I think on some level, the structure of the dream follows what Cutthroat has told us of Kim Glowing's story of why she's seeking out the great sleigh once again uh, of what she had done to fish catcher fish catcher of killing him twice and her desire to now be a slave and these roles are kind of all confused in cutthroat's mind and i and i wonder then if cutthroat is beginning to process finally all that's happened to him in his last several days as he knows his life is kind of failing as he's dying really and at this point for him his dreams are really important and it seems as though his dreams are more important to report than his progress of following the great sleigh and this could maybe be because he knows he's near death but it could also be because his needs are taken care of his sort of hierarchical needs he knows he can get shelter he has people to help him food is not going to be an issue for him because of the allies he's gathered and and they're taken care of to a degree that figuring out what's happening metaphysically or spiritually is more important to him than uh, figuring out how to survive on this planet and to report the logistics of following this path and what it means in the physical world to follow the path. So there's just a lot going on here that Wolf, I think, is wrapping up. Right. And well, you shouldn't come out of the underworld unchanged, right? You shouldn't come out of the underworld unmarred. And and that's what happened. He's done the underworld phase of the hero's journey, and it has 
scarred him, right? It's it's traumatized him, but he was already wounded in body before he went in there. And so, you know, the the type of wound that he needs to get while he's down there, just in terms of thinking narratively, has to be this kind of spiritual or or psychic uh, wound. And he definitely has that. And now that is a type of obstacle that he has to overcome, or at least it's an obstacle that is in front of him. And we'll see if he does overcome it. We'll see if he actually has to overcome it or, or how this is going to work in his character. I, I want to go back to this uh, idea that you've got about thinking about this, uh, talking to the people on the other side of the recorder, the, the other side of the transmission as a type of prayer. And I think that that's really a, a brilliant observation because, of course, there's no way for us to know if anyone actually is listening we just have the narrator saying that he surmises and that he believes that people are listening, but we don't have any objective way to see any evidence of that. We're not hearing the sort of sounds that he thinks indicate that people are listening and and, and so on. We, we don't have any access to, you know, to check to see if there are actual radio frequencies being emitted from this thing or, or so on. And so it does just feel like prayer, right? Because that's what prayer is. It's It's talking to someone that you believe is there, but there's no real objective way to demonstrate that that person is there as well. And the types of things even that he's saying here to this audience who may or may not actually be there do very much feel like prayers. I'm so glad once again that we've decided to do this project in chronological order because uh, it it is almost in some ways echoing what Wolf had written in Westwind. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you can see him almost you know, certainly working on these two ideas at the same time, where he's got this idea with the, the recorder uh, as a device for communicating with God. And I think that's awesome. I really am also glad that we're doing this this project so slowly and in order. It's not the first time we have felt glad about that either. Well, uh, now we come to an entry in the recording that uh, is really quite interesting to me. It's not an entry recorded by our narrator. It's recorded by Kim. So she has seen the narrator using the recorder, and she understands what what it is. And so now she's using it to leave him a message while he's sleeping. Of course, she's leaving and she doesn't want to tell him in person. She just wants to slip out quietly and just leave him a note, basically. She longs for her home, and so she's going back. She really did, though, want to catch the great sleigh, but that was when she thought that that was not only possible, but imminent. But now she knows that they will never catch it, and that the farther they get from her homeland, the harder it will be for her to make her way back there. But she wants him to know that she loves him. Not the way that she would love a husband, but that's only because he's not the same species as her. And here's how she puts it. If only your heart had been born into Fishcatcher's body, we might have lived beside the waters. This is a beautiful, poetical way to put this. It's also heartbreaking. This genuinely affected me when I read this part of the story. But it also struck me on an intellectual note, because up to this point, I'd really been thinking that this story was a glimpse into the narrator's act of recording this journal. But now it seems like this story is someone listening to it. It, it, Maybe it's these people the narrator thinks are listening, or maybe it's someone who has gained access to the recorder later. But now suddenly it feels like there is actually an unnamed, unseen character in this story who is accessing this material very much like we got in VRT, though that in that case, that character was named and was seen on the page. Yeah, at this point in the story, it's really not clear that Cutthroat is continuing to listen to his previous day's recordings, uh, especially since he's become certain that the Great Slate is listening to, to him. He's not just recording for himself and his own sense of journaling and under and revisiting what's happened to him uh, the 
previous day or the the past few days before, uh, and he never really comments, as we'll see on Kim's final recording. So it does really put into question uh, just who the reader is and what the role the reader is supposed to take as this story continues and whether we're the primary audience or there is a person in this world as this journal, this series of recordings is a material artifact in the world. I have to say this bit about Kim glowing, leaving also really affected me and it's very, very sad, but in reflecting on the story, I think Wolf has foreshadowed this moment in a very subtle way. And, and that was in what we talked about last episode by having cutthroat understand the difference in species between himself and Kim glowing when he sees her naked. And one thing we don't get in this story at all is facial expressions, reactions. We don't get anything of Kim's gazing back at Cutthroat as he gazes upon her when she's chained to the throne with the dwarf um, and maybe seeing his reaction to finally understanding they're a different species. But also in the cave, he calls her an animal. And I wonder if she spent the past few days really thinking about what he meant and understanding how different they really are if she's processing that and how impossible it will be for her to be with him in any meaningful sense other than as a traveling companion in the same way like Jack London dogs are traveling companions to the people though we get the animal point of view in in some of Jack London's great wilderness novels so this really is a sad moment and it just for me called up how little Wolf is communicating about the emotional states of the people as they're going on this journey. And and yes, it's heartbreaking. Right. And and, and there's uh, this hint that there's almost this entire romance that's been happening kind of off the recording here, off page that we've not been privy to because it's not something that the narrator's really been talking about in the recording, but that they, you know, they have developed a friendship, they've developed a bond, and that, in, that some of those bonds have at least some kind of romantic tinge uh, to it, maybe not for both of them or maybe not for both of them at the same time, uh, which is fantastic. And we're going to see this again in Wolf, who actually is often, I think, accused of not writing romance very well but uh, I, I would put this up against Patrick Rothfuss uh, any any day and the idea of romance here between two people who are clearly different species really also seeks to emphasize the question of what does it mean to be a person versus an animal uh, how would we treat someone who has different DNA than we do as a different species than we do, but that we think has sentience that see that we think has personhood that we think is a, a person, right? It's one thing to uh, treat, that individual like a person to to share meals, to be in some kind of, of community together, to be friends together, to go on a mission together, to cooperate. But it's a whole nother step to have a romance with that person, to feel romantic love for that person. It would be another step, I suppose, as well, to have sex with that person. We don't get that here. It's just something that we get hinted at with Wolf. But of course, we have had something like this before, perhaps, with Sonia, Crane Wesselman, and Kitty. And I think we're going to want to revisit that in the discussion as well. And I'm, I'm so glad that Wolf subtly brings that up here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This story does share some DNA also with Sonia, Crane Wesselman, and Kitty. And 
I just want to say here that, uh, you know, Wolf in no way is taking the kind of the next generation Riker approach to his characters when they, <laughs> when they uh, encounter different species. And maybe I prefer Wolf's approach, though. Uh, I do I do appreciate, you know, Riker's roguishness in, in, in TNG. <laughs> uh, everybody appreciates Riker's roguishness. Uh, Riker's roguishness. I don't know. That's probably not a band name, but uh, I don't know. I'd buy a record with that name for sure. <laughs> well, uh, day 15 begins with a clear indication that the narrator has not heard Kim's entry, as you, you suggested, Brandon. And so at first, he, he worries that she's been abducted again, though, of course, he does eventually realize that she has simply left. And, and this is something that he acknowledges simply by saying into the recorder, goodbye, Kim. Uh, and he then recounts another dream. Uh, this is one in which he kills the dwarf again. And I think it's telling here that he calls the, the dwarf, he calls him by name. He actually calls him Mantru, which is something that he never did while he was recording his entry for day 10, uh, even though, of course, he had recorded that entry after he had killed him as well. He also tells us that he's been thinking more about the staffs that they used in their duel and that he now believes that his profound weakness on this journey is neither the result of the cold nor the result of his wound, but is in fact, because this staff used his life force. And he also surmises that this was probably the cause of Mantru's dwarfism, that he must have used a staff while he was a child and that this stunted his growth. Uh, of course, right, this is an old trope, right? The idea of a sort of physical price for magical power. It's really cool, though, to see the way that, that Wolf is playing with that fantasy trope, I guess, in a sort of science fiction way here. Not the first time we've seen it, won't be the last time that we see Wolf thinking along these lines and, and, and playing with these ideas. But in the end, though, the, the real crux of Day 15 is that the, the source of the ominous footsteps around their campfire the last two nights is one of the Wigiki group that the narrator knows. And this is a person named Crooked Leg, who used to be called Fire Rock, but got his new name when he was injured during the, the hunting of Nashwonk that we had all the way back near the, the beginning of the novella. And Crooked Leg is also going after the Great Sleigh because he hopes that the people there can heal his injury. Not the first time that we've seen the people of this planet looking for the Great Sleigh because they know they have healing powers there. And uh, Crooked Leg has a sled with him, a, a sail sled that will carry all three of them. And uh, now we have really come full circle where the narrator's experiences early in the story are now helping him at the end of his quest, right? This is classic hero's journey stuff, though one of the things I really like about this is that Wolf was building all of this into the story, I, you know, I think 10 pages or so before we recognized that we were going to get actually a hero's journey at, at all. But Wolf always knew what he was up to here. And well, at this point, I think we can we can zip right in and out of day 16, and then we'll take a pause and take stock of, of what we've got going on so far. So they make great speed with this sled. When they camp that night, they do so in a Wigiki tent, which is the, the narrator's favorite type of shelter on this planet. But what really matters here is that he tells us that he has ditched the staff with which he killed Mantru. And... He doesn't make that connection explicit, but it does seem to me that this is mostly why he wants to get rid of it, right? That he feels guilty about Mantra's death and he wants to get rid of, uh, maybe get rid of the stain might be a way to, to put it. Yeah, the staff here is really represented to us as a perverse weapon. It destroys even the one who uses it. And I think that may be because its only uses are to control and to kill or maybe even destroy would be a better way to put it. Well, the other weapons we've encountered in this story, the other technology we've seen, they're used really for hunting and sustenance of life. But you're also right to point out that Cutthroat is genuinely haunted by his actions in the cave, by his use of this staff. 
in day 10, one thing we didn't mention was that uh, Cutthroat says that he could defend his actions. He could justify them. Anything he did in the cave, not based on the difference of species or type, but because he would be acting in self-defense. His life was constantly in jeopardy by the creatures who lived in the cave. And now we're seeing that he didn't really believe that justification of his actions. He, he knew that whatever he did, however he acted, would have cost him. And, and we also get that sense by the fact that he says that deciding to not kill Ketan was a true expression of the type of life he wanted to live, the type of person he wanted to be, be uh, and the type of pride he could have in himself by abstaining from killing even though he knew he could and that this killing is a violation of some sort of his own character and part of what he's doing here is a classic sort of post-traumatic action which is to distance himself and avoid the things that remind him of the action that he took that caused his trauma and the things that he experienced that caused his trauma and what he wants to do now is be reminded of where he came from in this sort of rebirth that he experienced, and that is to remind himself of the Wigiki tribe. So Crooked Leg is definitely a friendly face here for Cutthroat. And this is something I never would have recognized in any wolf story if I had not been reading Mark Aramini's uh, general analysis of Gene Wolfe's stories. And it's that Crooked leg or a character with an injury to their leg is kind of a big trope in wolf stories, which is essentially representing a virtuous character with an injured leg. And it's just fascinating to me that Wolf is is putting that even in this story, though Crooked leg is not the hero. uh, His experiences being injured have changed his outlook on the world, Crooked leg. And Crooked leg leaves the Wagiki, not just because he wants to be healed, but he says basically because he was being looked at as food. And so his uh, journeying to join Cutthroat and his seeking of the great sleigh is a kind of virtuous journey for Crooked Leg as well. It would actually be really quite fun to imagine Crooked Leg as the protagonist of this story, right? We could that we could retell this story from Crooked Leg's perspective. I mean, we would lose all of the stuff about the cave and the city and so on, but we could tell the story of the Great Sleigh from his perspective, and that actually I think would be a, a really fun exercise if people are looking for looking for writing prompts out there. And I don't know, someday we might do a uh, uh, there might be a second volume of Shadows of the New Sun when people are writing homages to Wolf stories. This would be I don't know a fun candidate for that. I'm also interested in his his first. First name Fire Rock. Most of the the names I think that we saw uh, among the the this group of Wagiki had to do with personal attributes. Like Long Knife is called Long Knife presumably because he has a long knife. Uh, Red Chloe. I guess maybe we're not quite sure why she's called Red Chloe, but maybe she wears them in some way, or really just maybe named after things sort of in their environment. But Fire Rock is an interesting name. What is that referring to? I don't know. The women in this story seem to be named after plants in the world in some level and and this reminder here that fire rock is the name of a character uh could be because he's good at making fires from hitting rocks together it could be that there's another connection to the cave here as the there's some minerals in the cave that seem to make heat it's also the bags of rocks that they heat up so maybe he's not a great hunter but he cooks more he's 
could be uh, an affiliation more with the feminine characteristics or feminine roles in the tribe. There's a lot to dig into into these names, which we'll be doing in the discussion. But to me, it just calls to mind the minerals. I mean, we have the flashing Ah character, which is another woman that we meet from the Wagiki tribe. The flashing Ah could be a plant, but it could also be a mineral. There's just a lot we don't know about this world that Wolf is hinting at through names. But it's interesting to me that Longknife renames Crooked Leg as soon as he gets injured. And so it even makes it more unclear why people get the names that they get in this world. And it'll be a fun discussion kind of trying to suss all that out. Yeah, awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. And and frankly, I think it's it's clear, right, that I just want to read a lot more stories about the Wigiki. So if someone wants to write an entire Jack London style story cycle about these people, I will uh, I will be your number one fan. But all right, we are at the home stretch here. Only three days left and, and only three pages left in this massive novella here. On day 17, the snow begins to melt during the day, and at night, the narrator observes that it is still very bright out, and the source of the brightness is something that looks like the sun, except dimmer. And what's going on here, and and he understands this and he explains it to us, is that metal dust in the atmosphere is reflecting and amplifying the light of the sun. It's creating then a, a warmer atmosphere here on this planet that we're witnessing terraforming in action here. And in fact, the next day, it's so warm that the sled becomes useless and it is warmer now than either White Apple or Crooked Leg have ever experienced in their lives. And now we come to the final entry, day 19. In the morning, the narrator simply cannot walk anymore. And so he tells his companions to leave him, but they won't. And so they build a litter for him. But Crooked Leg's injury makes him useless in this moment, but they still won't leave him. And so... The narrator pretends to be afraid of them. He pretends to be afraid that they they really just want to kill and eat him. And this gets them to go away. And it was a cruel thing to do, right? To doubt their friendship. And the narrator knows it. But he also genuinely wants them to catch the great slate and not want to be a burden to them. Once he's alone, the narrator does try to walk, but he can only go a few steps at a time. And he eventually just has to make camp for the night, having made very little progress. But then he sees it. Then he sees the great sleigh. It's not on the path ahead of him, the path heading west, but it's on the path behind him. It's coming from the east. And it turns out that what's happened is that the vehicle has circled all the way around the planet and it's come back again. And now the narrator will get to talk to his people face to face again. And here's the last paragraph of the story. Let's just read this to to close out here. I know who you are now. The small planet is round and you have come back. And the time for talking into this black box is over. I am going to talk with you face to face. Who is that tall man with you? I think he has wings. And that's it. That is the end of Tracking Song. Yeah, so now we have everything really tied together, except maybe the true purpose of Cutthroat's mission. Uh, But we do learn a lot. The planet is being terraformed, maybe for humans to return. Uh, The Great Slay is doing some quick loops around the planet, and that means it's really traveling much faster than anyone anticipated. Uh, If it's we don't know how large the planet is, but it's doing a maybe maybe a 14-day loop. I mean, maybe the couple days that Cutthroat was in the cave, maybe he was in there longer than he understood. And so he they were going to pick him up at a certain point. Again, I su- suggested uh, that Mark Garamini had this kind of idea. And he's further ahead than they thought he was going to be. And so it took them a couple extra days to, to find him. 
maybe the Great Slate has all sorts of people going on these types of missions around the planet to make sure that it's ready for people to habitate uh, finally. But it's got to be going really fast if it can circle around a whole planet in 20 days or so. Uh, it's, it's, it's great. It's a great revelation that we get. This story, though, I think ends on a real note of hope with this, with this tall man with wings that's kind of in the shining sun with this metallic dust almost that's, that's changing the planet. Uh, it seems to be the case that the human hybrids on the planet will be able to cope with the changing ecosystem since they're all like kind of wearing furs and things like that. Any way that they can declothe or wear lighter clothing. Um, but this image of the shining thing with wings is imagery, again, from the book of Revelation, also from, you know, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, that, that calls to mind the Son of Man, which was a phrase used both to talk about uh, Jesus Christ in his kind of final form his full spiritual glory, uh, but also talking about angels as well, this this uh, being who sits at the right hand of God. Uh, so I think that this is kind of the New Jerusalem imagery again, this return to prophetic imagery from the Christian Bible, including the Old and New Testament, that Wolf has been using in the story and kind of bringing it full circle, even though it feels so unexpected and like it's coming out of nowhere. I mean, Wolf is just a master of hiding his allusions in the story to the point where when he comes up with them, they seem fresh and unexpected. And I think it's a great way to end the story. So we obviously have a lot to talk about in the discussion, and we can leave this kind of bit of prophecy and the way it's interwoven through the story uh, for that episode. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of our final section of the recapping of Tracking Song. And if you would like to support the network and help us make more podcasts, please check us out at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. At every level, you get immediate access to dozens of bonus episodes. And then from the second level up, you get to participate in the process that we use to decide what we cover uh, across the network. And whatever you can pledge helps us get closer to our goals, which are all about expanding our coverage and, and doing more podcasts, doing more new shows for you. So... As we've been hinting at, I think, for two episodes now, next time we're going to be back with a discussion of Tracking Song. There is, as you said, Brandon, going to be a lot to discuss. So uh, I would encourage listeners to uh, bring some Pringles to snack on. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.